Today, though, we're going to be finishing up our series titled Law and Grace. As I've been thinking about this series as we've walked through it, uh, I've realized, like, it's so foundational, this series and what we're talking about here, in order for us to understand the storyline of the Bible, to understand how law and grace work together and how they complement one another, but ultimately how law gets us to grace. And so this is probably going to be a series that's going to pop up every once in a while where we do some one-off sermons uh, in between series where we just get a chance to remind ourselves of this dynamic. So, okay, so today our Law and Grace series is going to wrap up in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible or device you want to turn or swipe to that, go ahead, you, you can do that, otherwise you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. One of my stated intentions as we've gone through this series is to help us read our Bible. And my thinking in this is we have a tendency to think of our relationship with God in transactional terms, kind of this, this for that way of thinking about God. And, and one of the ways we've continually come back to this idea is in Deuteronomy 28, okay? Fifth book of the Bible. It says there, if you obey, you will be blessed. Obey, you will be cursed. So this idea is you've got to act appropriately. You've got to act good, right? And then God will bless you. But if you don't act in accordance with the ways that God has set before you, then you're going to be cursed. And so really clearly here we can see this transactional nature that's kind of coming out here in Deuteronomy 28. And so we think, we can apply this to the rest of the Bible as well. I think we do this oftentimes as we think about the Christian life. We think that God's approval of us waxes and wanes according to our behavior. If our behavior is good, God is happy. If our behavior is not good, God is not happy. An individual by the name of J.D. Greer was writing on Martin Luther, and he said this. Martin Luther said that our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. That is, the idea that what we do determines how God feels about us. Unless we are actively preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, we fall back into works righteousness. And so we've got this tendency in all of us to base our salvation, to base God's approval on, uh, of us on our works. When we sin, when we do things that we know God would not be happy with, we begin to think, God doesn't like me. I'm outside. I I'm pushing away from the table that God has set for me. And ultimately... Where that leads to is despair. We'll kind of swing between pride and despair, right? Pride on the days that we feel like we're knocking it out of the park and we're doing really good. Despair on the days that we're not, when we're failing. And Martin Luther knew this well. He dealt with plenty of depression and days of despair, thinking that I have failed I have sinned, God is not happy with me. All of us struggle to understand how kind God really is. And to conceive what a gift grace is 
to us. God is so kind. God is so patient with us to the extent that it, when we really understand it, it's offensive. We begin to feel in ourselves, God, you can't like me. You can't be okay with me because you know I've done this and this and this. Grace becomes offensive to us when we really internalize it. And we feel this probably when we're called to forgive those who have wronged us or to bear with those who are annoying us. I've got to be patient with that person. I feel like I've reached my limit. I don't want to be patient any longer. I don't want to extend grace. But this then drives us back to the reality, no, this is who God is. This is what he's done with us. He is bearing with us, patiently, kindly walking with us in the midst of our own failures. So it's imperative then that we understand how Jesus fulfilled the law, how he made the law obsolete as it pertains to salvation. But it's vital, also vital for us to understand the proper use of the law today. We do not make ourselves holy by obeying God's law. Hear me really clearly on this. We do not make ourselves right by obeying God's law. Okay? If you've got the Ten Commandments hung in your house, and every time you walk by that and you think, I'm not murdering someone, I'm not lying, whatever it is, and you think, oh, God's happy with me because I'm doing this? No. You do not make yourself more of a Christian because you obey God's law, because you obey the Ten Commandments. The law ultimately has to get us to Jesus. It has to, the law has to promote our faith in Jesus, not our faith in our ability to keep the Ten Commandments. The law has to get us to Jesus and trusting in him. And that's where the verses we're looking at this morning ultimately are going to get us. So let's read these verses from Mark chapter 3. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the ways in which it communicates gospel to us. I pray that you would Help us to be able to see the gospel, to hear the gospel, but ultimately that we would be changed by the gospel as we spend time in these verses this morning. So would you tenderize our hearts 
to the beauty of grace, and would you massage grace deep into our hearts this morning. In your great name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this story finds Jesus entering a synagogue, okay, which is where a Jewish person would go to worship. And we find there is a group, group of people who are watching Jesus closely as he comes into the synagogue. And this group of people is named, in verse 6, as Pharisees. So let me just share a few words about Pharisees. Pharisees were a sect of people within the Jewish nation that were known for a number of reasons, of which I'm not going to name all of those things this morning. But in the Bible, we find them oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes as antagonists to Jesus and his teaching. And we find these individuals oftentimes holding positions of religious authority within the Jewish community. We find them being concerned with garnering honor and recognition from others. Lastly, and most importantly for our purposes today, they have a fixation on keeping the Old Testament law. They were known to study the law, to keep the law meticulously, and to add on to it when they felt clarification was needed. With this focus on the law, they felt strongly that people must observe the Sabbath. And then, when people didn't observe the Sabbath in a way they felt was thorough enough, they were not hesitant in offering condemnation of those people and offering their judgment of those people. So it's no surprise that we find them keeping a close eye on Jesus in these verses and having an intent to accuse him for doing wrong in what they consider is wrong. This intent to accuse was also related to other things going on in the Gospel of Mark around this story as well. So there's other teachings, other actions Jesus had been involved in, but for today and the Pharisees, this was kind of the flavor of the day, what Jesus was doing as it pertained to the Sabbath. So let's talk here just briefly about the Sabbath. This is one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses for Israel. So let's read, let's go back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, and let's read what God instructed Israel at that time. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God was clear with his people. He wanted his people to work for six days and then to take the seventh day as a day of rest. It says that this day is a holy day. It was to be a day for them to rest, to remember, to reflect on all that God had done for them. And then, as they remembered all those things and reflected on all those things, it would then move them to worship God as well. So this was to be a day in which they would remind themselves of their dependence on God. They were a people who were dependent 
on God. And in Exodus 20, we read how all of this is rooted in creation. God created in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. God commanded his people to rest just like he rested as well. He's saying this was for their good. God gave this day of rest for their flourishing. In this, we see the wisdom of rhythms. So this wasn't given as a mindless ritual to appease God, the Sabbath. But it was given as a rhythm that was to provide rest and to be a reminder of God's goodness and of his care for his people. And this is why today, even though this law like all Old Testament laws, has been set aside by Jesus, it is still wise. It is still prudent to incorporate rhythms of rest and worship into our own daily lives as well. So there's no law legislating, legislating this for us today. Rest, rhythms of rest. But it is for our good and for our flourishing to plan and live in this way that God has designed for us. Okay, so let's look now at some of the details that we encounter in this story. There's a man in this story who has a withered hand, and he becomes a focal point for this story. Now, Jesus knows what he's doing here. He's not naive to what's occurring around him, and we're going to see that everything that he's doing in this story is full of intention. It's not accidental at all. all. He understands all of these eyes in the synagogue are on him. And so what he's doing is going to be done for a purpose. So Jesus identifies the disfigured man, and he immediately beckons this man to himself. So we, we've got to note the grace even in Jesus doing this. A man who was pitied, a man who was likely avoided by others, who likely had handouts thrown at him, who some people might look at and say, that man is gross, or that man is broken. Jesus says to this man, come here. Jesus wants to be near this man. There's no avoidance in Jesus. Jesus isn't ashamed in any way. He's willing to be near to one who others might avoid. But then notice what Jesus does. He engages in a conversation, but we've got to notice the direction of the conversation. Right? So he, he beckons the man to come to him, but then his address is specifically to them. So it's not to the disfigured man, or the, the man with the disfigured hand, but he's speaking now to the Pharisees. And this is intentional. He draws the man with the withered hand to himself and he speaks. He asks a pointed question to those fixated on the law. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or kill? Now in this moment, the Pharisees are likely mentally filing through hundreds of laws that they have memorized and the many stipulations and exceptions that could be called upon. And Jesus, in his intentionality, is going to expose them in this. 
He's going to show what the law produces in people. And it's not pretty. These Pharisees have no response to Jesus' question. It says that they are silent. Now one thing that's really interesting in this scenario is the nature of the man's injury. This does not seem to be a life-threatening situation. It's likely something that this man has dealt with for years. Jesus could have waited to heal him on the next day, correct? When it wasn't the Sabbath. And it pushes us to wrestle with why Jesus felt the need to do what he did at this time. Jesus is being compassionate. For sure. But he's doing much more than just being compassionate. We're going to come back to this bigger initiative that Jesus has. But I want to make just a couple more additional observations here of what's going on in this story. First of all, Jesus is angry and he is also grieved by what he is observing, by what's going on in this scenario. He has inquired of the Pharisees as to what is appropriate to do on a Sabbath. And they have no response whatsoever. They're silent. And one thing that we observe here is that not all anger is created equal. We have to know that this anger that we see in Jesus is not a sinful anger. Now, we can't just take that and justify all of our anger, right? Much of our anger is sinful, Speaking about myself, first and foremost here. Much of my anger, whether it be with my kids, something culturally, whatever it might be, much of my anger cannot be excused. Which is why I have to regularly ask for my children's forgiveness as well. But not all anger is sinful. And we see this in Jesus. There is a righteous anger. Jesus' anger Because the Pharisees are filled with contempt instead of compassion. So so Jesus is filled with compassion, but those that he's defined are filled with contempt. Ultimately, the law is not getting the Pharisees to Jesus. And that's the issue here. The law is not getting the Pharisees to Jesus. It's actually getting in the way of them getting to Jesus. So the law is preventing good. The law is preventing life. The law is preventing healing. We've got to let this marinate in our own hearts a little bit. Because of our own sinfulness, our own attempts to use the law in a way that proves our own goodness and piety before God will actually only keep us from Jesus as well. Our efforts to obey the law as a means to getting near to Jesus will accomplish the opposite. If we look at the Ten Commandments and we begin to feel justified in any way as to how we obey them, if we're smug about how we've never murdered anyone or how we worship God on a regular basis, One, we probably aren't thinking of what Jesus did at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew when he raises the bar and he basically makes it impossible to keep the law. Because Jesus doesn't just say, don't murder someone. He says, don't get angry with someone. 
And though I might look out at us and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure most of us probably have never killed somebody, just the fact that we're here probably proves that what I know without a doubt is that every single one of us has been angry in a sinful way. Probably this morning. Right? So in one sense, we're probably overlooking what Jesus has said about the law, but also we will be simulating the Pharisees here in Mark 3. The law does not justify us. Never. The law never justifies us. It only condemns us. For us to focus on the law or emphasize law-keeping will only cause us to mitigate our need for Jesus. If it's about you, what you do, then why do you need Jesus? We are lawbreakers, not lawkeepers. Our attempts to keep the law, if that's a primary focus, will lead us into something that inhibits goodness, that inhibits healing, that inhibits life. A focus on law over and against grace will lead to Jesus being filled with grief, possibly anger, especially when we would know the law's use. The law's use is not for us to justify ourselves by obeying. The law's use, as we've talked about multiple times in this series, is to get us to Jesus, to see our need for him, for him and to beckon us to trust in him, not in ourselves. Okay, so we see Jesus angry and grieved here. Secondly, uh, I also want to point out how law observance leads to hypocrisy. Law observance leads to hypocrisy. We read in verse 6 how the Pharisees went to the Herodians. All of the laws that the Pharisees would make, that they would add on to God's laws as well, I would be pretty confident that the to what God had put in place. Most likely, all of this activity, there's something going on here that would cause them to break Sabbath laws as well. So the very thing they were angered over with Jesus is likely what they're on, on the Sabbath. And so it's got to cause us to ask, threatening why is Jesus? There's got to be a reason. While some might say Jesus is breaking the law. That's what the Pharisees are saying. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is sinless. So for him to break the law would create a whole set of questions for us. We've got to go back to Matthew 5 and what this teaches. It says there, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So part of what Jesus is doing here is he's fulfilling the law. He, he's giving us a hint, a whisper of the fact that he is coming to earth to fulfill the law. But then also we read in Hebrews 8.13 that Jesus makes the law obsolete. So in a sense, he doesn't abolish the law. That's what we read in Matthew 5. But in another sense, he is making the law obsolete as well. So what's going on here is we're receiving a whisper of how Jesus is fulfilling the law and in a sense, superseding the law. 
In a sense, Jesus is becoming the law himself. He's replacing the law. And replacement is a helpful way to think about this. So let me try and illustrate this briefly. We talk regularly about how everything in the Bible is narrowing in on the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. At the center of the whole Bible is Jesus. And one way we talk about that is how the Bible is full of symbols. It's full of events. It's full of people. It's full of themes that are ultimately seen or fulfilled in Jesus. And we get one of those in this story today. The idea of Sabbath is one of those concepts as well. God gave Israel, his people, a Sabbath so they were able to rest. So they were able to be reminded of God's goodness and so be moved to worship him. Ultimately, when we consider Sabbath, it should lead us to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we should be able to see God's goodness. We should be able to find rest. We should be able to see something that would cause us to worship Jesus. So we should conclude that Jesus is our true Sabbath rest. He is. He is what we are looking for. He is what we need. And Jesus says this essentially himself. He says in Matthew 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And right after this, Jesus is going to go on in Matthew 11, and he's going to say explicitly, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I rule the Sabbath. And we also hear Jesus saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So, so we're not made to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is given to us so we might understand rest, so we might find rest. And rest is something that is vital for us. We all need it, but rest is oftentimes not what we think it is. We might think in terms of a nap, or a vacation, or maybe a Netflix show at the end of a long day, or maybe going to the cabin. And these things aren't necessarily bad, but I do think we tend to hope in things to provide us something that they cannot provide us. Have any of you ever gone on vacation? and feel like you need a vacation from your vacation? Right? Most of us, probably all of us, have felt that at some sense. 
And that proves my point here. Rest is elusive. Deep, renewing, refreshing rest is elusive. Because we're oftentimes looking for it in the wrong places. We put so much emphasis on resting from. Whatever that might be that we overlook resting in. And resting in Jesus ultimately. What the Bible teaches is not that we should observe the Sabbath by trying to follow a bunch of laws, but that we find Sabbath in Jesus. We find what we're looking for in Him true rest. We find goodness. We find life. We find healing. In Jesus. Not in something that we do, but in something that Jesus has done in the way that we end them. We want you walking out of here thinking about not all the things that you need to do, but thinking about what Jesus has done for you. This is not mere application, this is gospel application. This is about Jesus, it's not about us. So we have one point of gospel application for us today. And that is, Jesus fulfilled the law. You don't need to. In our verses today, at an initial glance, we could look at the man with the deformed hand, standing next to the Pharisees, who observe religious law meticulously, and we would likely conclude the man with the lame hand is in much greater need than the Pharisee. The Pharisee looks so well put together. He follows all the rules. He's cleaned up. He's admired by many people. That's what we should seek to emulate. But that's not what Jesus teaches. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees, he asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? The man with a withered hand was not in danger of dying. Not at that moment. But the Pharisees were about to conspire to kill Jesus. What is of greatest danger in this story is the destructive, self-righteous efforts of the Pharisees to keep the law. That is the greatest danger. This is what was killing them spiritually. Their efforts to make themselves into something. To do something that they ultimately could not do in and of themselves. They thought it made God happy that they would obey his law. But Jesus is communicating to them that it's actually destroying them. Their law adherence is actually killing them. And in this, Jesus is ushering in a new way, a better way. He's ushering in grace. He's emphasizing how what's most important is not what the Pharisees do, but what he does. Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us today as well, get over yourself. It's not about you. Your efforts 
to obey the law will only endanger you. So be free from that. Be free from that yoke of slavery that we will put on ourselves and try to do something that we will ultimately fail at. Jesus keeps the law for us. We will never improve upon what Jesus has already done. So you might ask, well then, I'm told not to lie. Does that mean I can lie? If I'm not to be concerned about the law, shouldn't I want to not lie? And I would say, yes, you should want to not lie. My encouragement to us has always been, believe the gospel. Really, there's one gospel application point we end with, right? Believe the gospel every Sunday. Believe the gospel. If we do that, if our efforts are focused on believing the gospel, the not lying will take care of itself. We will learn to think like Jesus. We'll learn to operate in his strength. We'll learn to hate what he hates. We'll not lie because this is what Jesus forms in us. He says, I am the truth. So if the one that we're obsessed with, we're focused on, we're believing in, is the truth, the not lying will take care of itself. But if you focus on not lying, and all your effort and focus is there, we likely will miss out on Jesus. Because we don't possess the strength in and of ourselves to not lie. We will love ourselves more than Jesus. And what will ultimately happen, trying to keep the facade up, and this will ultimately lead us into lying, because we can't keep the facade up. It will shatter. And the only way we can keep it up is to pretend to be something that we are not. So it doesn't matter what the instruction we read in the Bible, whether it's not lying, whether it's another of the Ten Commandments, whether it's being patient, whether it's building others up with our words. If we are focused on Jesus and we're trusting any of these realities in us, he will. He also says he's faithful. He will do this. It probably will take time. It probably will take you admitting your insufficiency. But he will accomplish this slowly but surely. This is the beauty of grace working itself out in our lives. We focus on Jesus. And so the picture then is our roots go down deep into the gospel. And that's where all of our effort goes. Roots down deep in the gospel. And then the fruits on that tree of itself. We focus on Jesus. All of the others take care of itself. All of that, those other fruits will be worked out in us by Jesus. And this is the freedom found. You don't have to try and make yourself into something, manufacture yourself into something that is in awe, moves us to grace, and then others will encounter grace in and through our lives.